from the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, once again, British Columbia, Canada. It's August 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. Today, the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have Grant Johnson. Grant? Hi there. I'm good to be back again. And where are you? I'm at home, actually which is a rare feeling for us this year. We've got a lot of traveling to do. We've already done a lot. We also have Sam Manicom. Sam? Hey, top of the day, everybody. And where are you? Um, I'm back in the UK. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of nice to be back here for a little while. Pick up some rain, you know, do away with that tan you picked up in the States. Uh, no, no, that's, that tan is still there. I'm so impressed. Normally I fade um, within a couple of days of getting back to the UK. But um, <laughs> when, when I was in the States, everybody was sending me emails and messages on Facebook saying, um, Sam, bring some of that sunshine back with you. Because you remember I was riding in sort of uh, everything from about 45 degrees Celsius to, to 51. And um, it had been raining nonstop for about six weeks in the UK. And within two days of me being back here, they've had sunshine. So I I claim every bit of credit for that. Um, Yeah, well, I wish. Um, I'd rather have the reputation for the sunbringer than the rainmaker, that's for sure. Very nice. We also have Graham Field. Graham? Hello there. And where are you, Graham? Uh, I'm in a pretty little city in the foothill of the Balkan Mountains uh, called Gabrovo, and I'm in a little private room on a 10th floor of what I would love to say is a hotel for the theme of the show, but is actually a hospital. <laughs> right, I thought you were going to say brothel at first. <laughs> no, I, we'll, we'll bring that up later. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, and, and by the way, the Rixes are somewhere lost in the outback. It doesn't appear they're going to be on this show. I mean, unless they show up partway through this, but it appears they're off. Um, last I saw, they had a picture of a kangaroo up on Facebook, and uh, I think they were planning, or they definitely were planning to try and get to this recording, but I guess they they just couldn't make it. So it's um, it's the four of us for today. But Graham, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, how much do you want to tell us? Well, what are you doing there? I, I won't go on about it because there's nothing more boring than someone droning on about their ailments. But in a one sentence, I've had suffered from a bad back for a probably nearly a year now from all the work I've been doing on the house. That has now turned into sciatica, a sciatic nerve is trapped in the bottom of my spine. So the whole of the left side of my leg is a pain, whether I'm riding, walking, sitting, sleeping, trying to mow the lawn, anything, and I'm fed up with it. And I've come into hospital on the advice of my chiropractor, and they're going to do do injections, do massages, do physiotherapy, do some other things that was lost in translation. And in 10 days, they assure me I will be fit I said, will I be able to play tennis? They said, yep. I said, that's great. I couldn't before. (laughs) Loss in translation. Isn't that kind of scary when you're in the hospital talking to the doctor about procedures? I have had that many needles stuck in me a day. And just now a pill to take. I don't know anything that I'm taking or being given. I've got utter faith and trust in them that they haven't got my card muddled up with somebody else's and I'm <laughs> going to come out with, I don't know, movies or some man boobs or something because I'm in a hormone replacement room. <laughs> well, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a traveller talking because um, Graham obviously believes in fate and um, is seeing the positive side to everything that's going on. Very cool. <laughs> Well, I have to. And and the other thing, which is going to be interesting for tonight's session, is that I am at least 30 miles away from my bottle of Jura. So here I am tonight, stone cold sober, and the only drugs I'm on are medicinal. (laughs) I was just thinking the same thing when you were talking about what you were in there for. I was thinking, wow, it's the first sober show. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's boring. It's boring me already. <laughs> well, our our first topic for today is a, sort of a remnant from the last show. What we were planning to do first day, but everybody got so long winded, mainly Graham, that the uh, the entire Hang on, show. <laughs> I got cut off actually in my defence. <laughs> So we decided to drag it over to this one because it's a it's a good topic. So we're, we're talking about first aid and, and the preparation that you guys would do if you're doing a trip or what you have done before when you went on a trip. And, and you know, I have the feeling it's one of these things that's like, it's like hindsight uh, of everything. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. they often say. You do your trip and you do it maybe on the, on the cheap or you cut corners or whatever. And afterwards you say, you know... The right way to do it is this way. So we'd probably best talk about the right way, but maybe even your experience. Why don't we start with, Sam, why don't you kick it off? <laughs> Are you aiming at this at me because you know that I'm a disaster magnet? <laughs> well, you do have a reputation for hospitals, Sam, and I just figured you're, you're almost, well, you're sort of our panel expert right now. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll be experienced at falling off my bike then. Um do you know, when I set off on the eight-year trip, I carried a huge first aid kit and um, most of it I didn't use. And the one time that I needed everything that was in the first aid kit, it was actually locked up in my bike and I was in hospital um, unconscious. So a lot of what I carried, um, I didn't actually use. Um, having said that, um, because I've traveled a little bit in other ways, I do have some fairly strong ideas about um what first aid kit um, you should carry and um, the experience that you need before you hit the road. Um, it can make the difference. Um, peace of mind, knowing instinctively what you're likely to need to do and that you've got the kit to deal with that or when you instantly need to be starting to look for help. Um, and training, for example, I think that before people head off on the road, however they're going to travel, it does make an awful lot of sense to get some training. Um, it teaches you common sense and what to do with the stuff that you're carrying. But first aid training also teaches you how to steer clear of the risks. Now, a lot of that is common sense. But when it's reinforced by the experience of the trainers, then all of a sudden things start to slot into place and it ceases to be... Um, a mumbo-jumbo situation that gets stuffed to the back of the mind because we nearly all are optimists and think that it'll never happen to me. But of course, when it does happen to you, it's kind of useful to know what you're supposed to be doing. And in the UK, you can get training from all sorts of different places, but um, St. John's Ambulance Brigade, uh, which is a, a charitable medical organisation, um, they do some superb training. And um, they have a, a, a fantastic reputation. And I think it's well worth the money um, getting in on a training session. It I'm, also glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Sorry, Sam, let me just interrupt. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that's probably what we should be looking at first, right, is, is the training. Because you can load up a first aid kit, but if you don't know what to do with it, it's not going to do you very much good, if any. And if you get the training, even without the first aid kit, you're far more, uh, you're far better off than the other way around. Training, I think, is absolutely critical. We do uh, try and do first aid training at all our travelers' meetings, and they're always very well attended. People are interested, and they they get engaged, and they, they really get uh, focused on it. And when we headed off on our trip, we spent, uh, I think it was a three-day or five-day, I can't remember which, St. John's Ambulance first aid course. And that was really, really valuable. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, it's how many people know what the normal body temperature is and how many people know what's considered to be a fever. Um, and, you know, th- those sorts of things, they're really, really simple. But my goodness, they can make a difference when you're out on the road, can't they? Yeah. And if you've got somebody lying there and you've got a, somebody's unconscious, they've crashed or whatever, where, where do you start? What do you do? Mm. You know, learning the ABCs and all the rest of it. Uh, can save somebody's life very easily. You know, it's not that complicated if you know what you're doing. But if you don't have a clue where to start, you know, what's the recovery position? Most people haven't got a clue. Graham, did did you laying in the hospital there? There's a good perspective for you. Did you take training before you went on your trip, or last trip, for instance? No, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't go off completely oblivious, though. Um, I on some of the first trips, scanned the forums as you do, found this. Uh, list of things you should take with you, which was really quite pedantic and overly comprehensive. My One of my best mates is a, a doctor, and I gave the list to him and said, can you get me all this stuff? And he went through it and he said, well, you probably don't need 50% of it. But he gave me this, it was huge. The panniers were mostly packed, and he came around with this bloody great sack of drugs. I was like, hmm, I'm probably going to have to <laughs> try and narrow this down. But what he did, and like Sam was saying about knowing what, what to do with them, he'd written down what they were called, what they were for, and how much to take. And this was for the Mongolian trip, in which was in 2010. So, and I've still got it because all I've ever taken is the ibuprofen and maybe taken a, a, a plaster out of it. So I do carry quite a comprehensive medical, medical kit with a vague understanding of what to take and when to take it. But as far as actual hands-on medical training, no, I haven't done any of that. What do you, what do you guys think the, the basic medical training is that you should have before you go on a trip? Would it be your, you know, your afternoon first aid with St. John's? Would it be a wilderness first aid course? What do you, what do you guys suggest or what would you recommend to someone? (laughs) You're asking a difficult question from people, three different levels. Um, (laughs) My, my personal preference is take as much as you can. And if you're, especially if you're traveling with somebody else, um, the more, you know, the less worry, the less stress, the less concerned you are about what can happen. And I think that that makes you feel more comfortable when you're traveling. Uh, but if you if you don't have any training, you know, things can go wrong. And if you are sitting there at the side of the road all by yourself with a broken leg, what do you do? If you haven't got a clue where to start, it's very difficult. You, you need to know how to use a splint and all the rest of that stuff. So I think the more you can put in, is good for the trip, but I think it's also good for life in general. I think everybody should take a minimal first aid course at the the minimum, just as a thing you should know. I totally agree. I think about it um, very much in in the vein of, you know, people learn how to change tires, to change oil and air filters, to replace cables and, um, you know, repair punctures and all of those sorts of things. Well, that's first aid for the bike. Why neglect first aid for yourself? Yeah, you're more important than the bike by far. Bike's not going anywhere without you. And also, you can you can recognize the severity of something. You know, if something happens and you know something, at least a little bit uh, of first aid, then you might be able to look at it and go, okay, this is not that big of a deal. Seems like a huge deal, but it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing how to clean out road rash. Just simple stuff. <laughs> I traveled with, uh, um, I had a, an accident in um, Tanzania and I had a, an American friend on the back of my bike and we protected him, gloves, um, 
thick canvas jacket, crash helmet, boots. The only part of his body that we hadn't protected was his knees. And of course, when we came off the bike, what did he land on? And mm-hmm. poor bloke, when they eventually got him to hospital, they cleaned out his knees with a scrubbing brush. Yes, been there, done that. Oh. That is so painful. That's like oh. probably the worst thing I've ever had done to me. Yeah. Yep, scrub brush, scrubbing away on raw knees. Oh, I have like it comes back vividly. Great memories, <clears throat> not great. Oh, I'm sorry, I reminded what you. What you see a lot oh. of people do? Sorry, what, what you see a lot of people doing here in Bulgaria because it gets super hot in the summer is they're riding their bikes and they've got a jacket on, they've got their lids and their gloves, but they're quite often wearing shorts and motorbike boots, but they wear knee pads, mm-hmm. and uh, you still got the air going up your shorts and what have you. And uh, although I haven't actually gone to it myself, it doesn't look like a bad idea. Rather than wearing Kev- hot Kevlar jeans, I don't have my, my vented trousers aren't very vented. And uh, I think it's a good alternative because you can just take them off in a heartbeat when you get to the restaurant, wherever you're going. And I think the knee pads are quite a good idea, actually. I wouldn't ride without knee pads anymore. Speaking of my, my road racing crash, uh, that was in the days when leathers... Uh, there was no padding at all. In fact, I remember getting the leathers custom made and said, do you want extra padding on the knees? And they said, oh, yes, please. That sounds like a really good idea. I haven't even thought of that. So she put a second layer of leather on the knees. Well, I can tell you that two layers of leather at 120 miles an hour is gone almost instantly. So, but, yes, but knee pads. But these are just yes. like strap-on kneecap pads, That's like fine. sort of rollerblazers or skateboarders wear. Way uh, better than nothing. You can still get your leg scraped. Um, I just saw a picture just the other day, in fact, of a guy who'd come off um, stunting, of course, and he was just like one side of him, the entire side, everything was just raw, six-inch wide swath of red down his side, his shoulders, his hips, his knees, his legs, uh, everything. Why? Because he was in shorts and a T-shirt? Shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't oh, think you guys just made me cringe. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just think about that, things like that. I mean, my experience in road racing and falling off way back when, when padding and stuff like that didn't exist was bad enough. But uh, the thought of riding without knee pads, elbow pads, shoulder pads, all the rest of it, back protection, I, it's just, I can't imagine doing it anymore. I wouldn't even consider it. Grant, when you say knee pads, you ride with, you wouldn't consider riding without knee pads. Are you talking the strap-on kinds that Grandma's talking about, or are you talking about the built-in ones? Preferably the built-in ones with some heavy-duty pants of some sort, uh, trousers that are designed for biking so that they've got some toughness to them. But if somebody's gonna got a choice between bare legs and nothing on the knees and bare legs and knee pads, hey, go for the knee pads. That's a win. You know, anything you can do. But I'm a, I'm a big believer in the at-gat principle. All the gear, all the time. All you need to do is fall off once. When I rode down through Africa, um, I had a pair of double thickness canvas um, jeans, which I'd sewed an extra two layers in the knees and an extra two layers in in the hips. And I rode with plastic knee and shin guards strapped on underneath those. And um, I liked that. It was it to me. It seemed to be the best combination because then I could walk around with the trousers just as ordinary trousers, although they were a little bit hotter than normal jeans. But it just meant that I had to carry less stuff. But I reckoned that I had given a reasonable amount of um, support, you know, strength to it. But you know, with Kevlar now, there are so many options around um, in jeans and so on for keeping cool. 
some of the genes have just got phenomenal venting and so on now. I can see why people in Bulgaria would want to do it because they get stinking hot temperatures there. But I think I'm going to keep as much covered as I possibly can. But I, those plastic knee and shin guards work really well. Yeah. The, the knee pads that are in pants, they, they aren't always the best, though, the ones that are stitched in, because to keep the knee pad in position, you've got to have a, a, a well-fitted pant for it. I, I'm yeah. saying this because I, I've had a, a set of pants. The knee pad, I always thought, boy, if anything happens, this thing's not going to be much use at all because it moves around so much. Well, if you want to get into uh, knee protection and all the rest of the protection, the, the European CE standards are important. And lots of times there may be pads in clothing. But if you look on it, there is no CE level one or level two standard on them at all. There is nothing. It's just the manufacturer said, oh, you want knee pads? Well, we'll stick a piece of foam in. And often as not, it either doesn't fit well, it doesn't stay in position, it's not big enough, it doesn't cover, or it's just plain rubbish foam anyway in the first place. So you've really got to be careful what it is you're buying. It's one of the things that I really uh, tell people on a regular basis. Look at the gear, decide on the gear you want, look at the armor. Is the armor good CE level one, level two, preferably the higher standard, and make sure it's actually good stuff? Is it going to do the job for you? Yeah. Yeah, I know we're sort of going way off topic here, but but I was just going to say, and and the fit, the qual the quality of the pant is really important too, or the or the jacket or whatever it is you're buying, because uh, it's again what I was saying about keeping those pads in place. If they're not held in place properly, then they're going to do no good at all. I mean, if you you go down and you've got an elbow pad that's you know uh, down on your forearm, it's not going to help you at all. Yeah, it's got to fit, and the the jacket and pants should both have um, some method of tightening things up, the legs up and the sleeve up so that it doesn't flop around as much. And it's important to do that up. I was given a pair of Kevlar-lined um, denim jeans to review um, about a year ago. And I've finally come to the conclusion that I can't review these jeans um, because they, the, the knee pads just don't stay in place at all. And I, I don't feel comfortable doing a review on that. And I'm not just going to, to slag the company off and say that this is rubbish. I'd just rather not do a review full stop. Um, the, yeah. the companies really, really need to get this sort of thing right. Um, I did come across a company uh, last weekend. Um, I was at the Cold um, Bike uh, Meet in, um, uh, in, in, Worcester, uh, in Wiltshire. And there was a company there and I looked at their gear and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And one of the things that I really liked about what they're doing with um, their jeans and cargo trousers is that they've got um, a very wide Velcro strip on the inside of the trouser and a very wide Velcro strip on the knee pads. And you can position these in exactly the right place to suit you. Mm -hmm. And I think, how simple is that and why aren't more people doing it? Well, one reason is because it's a huge chunk of Velcro. Um, mm. The trousers that I'm wearing now have uh, a couple of levels of Velcro so that you can raise or lower the knee pad mm. to the right position. And I think that's that's a simple, um, less intrusive method than a huge Velcro pad. Yeah, no, this isn't a Velcro pad. I'm I'm not coming across clearly. That's what they've got. You know, this very wide. It's a three-inch wide Velcro strip on the inside, so that you right, can move yeah. your pad up and down to to suit. Um, your body length, because, well, I mean, Grant, I'm sure the distance between your knees and your hips is completely different to mine, yet our waist yep. size and inside leg measurement may be exactly the same. Yeah, it can be a lot different. 
You're talking about the Velcro that's stitched to the inside of the pants, Sam, where you can yeah. pull it off. And yeah. You, yeah, this is the same yeah, as my that. pants, the the um, the 81 pants from Aerostitch. The, the, it, it's somewhat difficult to align because it's this free-floating thing. You can move it in any direction. So you have to mess around with it at first. But once you get it in there, wow, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful fit. That's important. As long as it fits in the end, I don't care much how they get there. Uh, I'm just thinking that that's a lot of Velcro is, is just what I'm thinking. But uh, if you can, as long as you can move it and adjust it, I don't care how they get there. Just, just going back to what we were talking about with training, um, one of the things that I'm very conscious that um, is available now, and it's there are bits of equipment that tr- proper training can help you to use well. And what I'm talking about is the old equivalent of um, the equi- modern day equivalent of um, dog tags. So the ICE tags that you can get and wristbands and um, helmet ID and things like that where the information pertaining to you is there. And when you do um, first aid training, you can, they, they help you work out exactly what you should be including within those information packs. I need to update mine. Um, after my experience coming back from the States last night and getting a deep vein thrombosis, well, my current information sheet doesn't have, it, have that on it. But of course, if I fall off the bike and start bleeding, then I want the medics to know straight away that I'm taking drugs that um, are going to mean that I'm difficult to stop bleeding. Mm-hmm. And where are you putting the ice tags? Is that, is that the, the zippered pocket that seems to be on a lot of jackets now on the arm? Um, I've got one that um, hangs around my neck. Um, mm. That's and, and do that, paramedics are, are trained to check for that? Well, well like I, I know they look for wrist tags and, par, and I guess neck tags. Will they look in motorcycle gear? Is that just a motorcycle thing? I think most of them are, are trained in like UK, US, et cetera, major countries. They're certainly trained to look for that because they deal with enough motorcycles where they're in the third world, some, you know, someplace in Burundi, whether they'd be looking for it, I doubt it. Well, I mean, I back these, these things up anyway with... Um, a little plastic bag that's marked with a red cross that goes into my jacket pocket and another one that goes in um, uh, my tank bags or tank panniers. And on that, I list my blood group, any allergies that I might have, um, medical contact details, travel insurance contact details. Um, and I'll put those you know, in my bike jacket with my wallet, uh, particularly with my wallet, because then when I'm off the bike and I'm walking around, hey, look, you know, you can get flattened by a runaway car or horse and cart. Um, so having those details with you there then um, also make a lot of sense. So the tag is an important thing, but actually having it in paper format in, in quite a few different places, I think, makes a lot of sense, too. Yeah, on you is the most important thing for sure. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That, that's for sure. That's, that's a big part of um, of your first aid kit, really, if you think about it. That's probably more important than anything yep. for yourself. Yep. When I was guiding, uh, I used to carry my the first aid kit in there would have my medical sheet. And it would also have uh, emergency instructions because I was leading a trip and want instructions in case I'm the only guide there telling them, you know, how to handle the, the situation. Also with my emergency contacts, et cetera. And, and that's the whole idea of this ice tag uh, format, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, the ice tag is a great idea and people should carry them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, Sam. Excellent uh, point to go in with a first aid kit. So um, basic first aid kit material like th- that you would put in there. What sort of things do you think that uh, you, know, you shouldn't be without? Antimodium. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Imodium's vital, isn't it? I have a yeah. very small list of, of things that I think that you should have in an overlanding kit. Now I'm talking when you're traveling out of your home environment and so on. Um, and this 
kit fits very comfortably into an airtight plastic container, you know, Tupperware type thing, but with clip down sides. So you're keeping it watertight, airtight um, and dust tight. And ours is about um, 10 inches long by about five inches wide. And everything that we need fits into that. This kit covers most of what you're likely to need. A small crate bandage with safety pins. And crate bandage is important because it's elasticated and you can do an awful lot with an elasticated bandage. Um, a triangle bandage, but um, I'm not sweating if I can't carry one of those because I can always tear up a T-shirt or something like that if I need to put um, an arm in a sling. Two different types of dressings. Gauze wound dressings because many wounds you actually need to let breathe for them to be able to heal properly, particularly if you're in um, hot, humid environments. And the other type is um, a paraffin gauze dressing for burns because it's amazing how quickly you can get burns um, when you're traveling on the road, camping, working on your bike, those sorts of things. Wound cleaning gauze, that's important because you need to have something that is completely clean and sterile to clean any wound that you may get. Band-Aids, of course, waterproof but but breathable. Now, many people don't carry this, Compede. I don't know whether you've come across it, but it's actually sold for people who are hiking. And it's basically a second skin to stop you, um, you getting a blister. But if, if you're spending a lot of hours on your bike and then all of a sudden you're walking around a big city a lot and exploring, it's amazing how quickly you can get um, blisters, particularly if you're doing your stomping around in your bike boots. And carrying a small pack of Compede can save you building yourself open wounds on your feet, which, of course, you really don't want to have. The next thing that I carry is a dry disinfectant powder. I don't carry gel or a cream or anything else like that because, again, um, you want to be able to let the wound keep as dry as possible. Um, Hand disinfectant gel, you know, you can get these little bottles all over the place, but it gives you a chance to have clean hands before you start work. A suture kit. Now, that sounds pretty extreme, but actually I'm talking about a couple of needles and um, some sterile thread and just being able to tag a larger wound together um, so that you can get help makes a massive difference. You can get the um, the little um, sticky um, strips, which will also do the same thing if um, you're a little bit more nervous about sticking needles into yourself or your friend. Um, tweezers, always good. Painkillers, of course. Grants and Modium, my goodness, where would we be without that? I carry one antibiotic and that's Flagyl. That's to stop bacterial infections, um, stomach bugs, um, skin joints, respiratory tracts and that sort of stuff. But if I, I, I always say to people, look, if you're going to carry flagell, then you've got to have very, very clear understanding of um, what it's for, when you should use it and what dosage. So this is something you definitely want to be asking the questions about when you're doing your first day training. Um, iodine tablets because that gives you clean water for wound washing a thermometer of course um, that's the biggest um, peace of mind thing hey I'm not feeling very well have I got a temperature oh no I haven't oh maybe I'm just tired then and duct tape don't laugh but duct tape's absolutely brilliant addition for your first aid kit and of course malaria prophylaxis um, if you're traveling in a particular part of the world where you need it and that's it and that does fit in that 10-inch by 5-inch by 3-inch container, and that's that's perfect. Yeah. Sounds very familiar, actually. That's 10-inch by 5-inch by 3-inch container with the clip-down sides. That's exactly what we took on our trip. Great. And uh, the contents, yeah, that's about right. I would certainly go right along with that list. It's good. Have I, have I missed anything out, Grant? 
Uh, I'm trying to think if there is anything else. Bee stings. Some people need bee sting, uh, like an EpiPen or something like that. And um, I carry stingies, which sting, E-Z-E, uh, for mosquito bites and things like that. I get really, really horribly itchy from mosquito bites, and mosquitoes love me. So I carry oh, you're such a stingies. wimp. Come on. <laughs> I, I'll take just about it. I, would, I don't even mind a bee sting, but I sure hate uh, mosquito bites. Well, what's the pen? That, there's a common pen that they have for mosquito bites. Um, the, the, for mosquito bites? Yeah, it's, it's just for mosquito bites. Well, um, I just know the stuff called Stingies. Stingies. That's probably the same thing. Yeah, there's a couple of different brands out there. Have you come across those little clickers that you can use? You you hold this to um, the mosquito's st- bite, and then you just press the top. And by pressing the top, it creates some sort of electric shock. And apparently, um, that takes the sting out of it. As it takes the sting out of the itch out of it. I've tried it, and actually, I was quite impressed. Birgit refuses to use it. She says it's masochistic. <laughs> that sounds sort of like you know pinching your upper lip to get rid of your headache. The pain of one takes over from the other. That's the Ooh. one. <laughs> Yes, I'd be interested to find out what that is, Dan. I'll go for that. So, so hang on just one second, guys, because I just want to wake Graham up. I think he's falling asleep on us. Graham, Graham. Yes. Are you awake? Is there? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working out. I'm seeing what it's like to be a listener. <laughs> <laughs> Did, have, have you guys been in a situation when you've been traveling where you where you get to a, a scene where you've had to use your first aid training? I haven't. Or no. lack of it. Um, we've been really lucky. We haven't had any incidents. Um, uh, I have more, I'm, I'm famous for getting sick in somewhat, some remote village in the middle of nowhere and Susan's fine, but I'm sick as a dog and they got to haul me off to the doctor and I get a shot in the butt. Um, this has happened a couple of times. Um, doctor says, well, I'm not quite sure what this is, but here, bend over and give me a shot. So they give me a shot and I'm all better feel much better next day still have no idea both times what it was that one was in uh, Tunisia and the other was in Melchor de Mancos Guatemala which is a town nobody's ever heard of because everybody just drives through it that sounds like Graham's experience with uh, medication yeah it's it's not fun <laughs> that's it um to be um contradictory here because because uh, I've been silent for a long time <laughs> I am not a fan of Imodium at all because my philosophy is if there's something in you that needs to get out, I want it to come out. I don't want it to be sat there breeding inside of me. So if I've got some bacterial issue, um, obviously no one wants to have the shits around the road. But if, it's, if it doesn't clear itself up, my way of dealing with it is to stay put for two days and I have no food by mouth. I drink warm, black, sweet tea and that is all I have. And I have never, I've had, I tell you, I've got a story of diarrhea for just about every single stamp in my passport, but I've never had a case that when I've started the, the black tea, no food treatment has ever lasted longer than two days. And then it's gone. It's totally gone. Start with some dry bread or some toast and then eat normally. And I feel I'm stronger because of it, because that bacteria, whatever it is, has now died. It's gone. It's finished. I haven't cogged it up with modium like a cork and kept it there to breed in the environment that it clearly loves or else it wouldn't be in the first place. So I'm not a fan of modium at all. 
Graham, I totally agree with you. Um, I do exactly the same thing. Um, get stuck with a stomach upset, then I just stay put until the stomach upset is cleared. Um, the only time I've used Imodium is when I've suddenly got a deadline. Like, for example, actually, I've run out of money and I need to go to the bank and my stomach is so bad, I daren't leave my bed without doing something. So I've taken it in situations like that or when there's a visa that's expiring and I need to head for the border, so I just have to get a move on. But one of my top tips for getting a stomach upset, besides Graham's warm sweet tea, hot sweet tea, no, and definitely not iced tea, um, is um, to boil plain rice and to add the juice of half a lemon to it and um, ordinary sugar. And I find that this helps bung me up quite quickly. It's actually a, an old Greek remedy for um, stomach upsets. So the combination of those two things um, seems to work really well for me. I would think the sugar in both of those would not be good for the situation because I thought you were trying to remove anything like that that will feed the bacteria. Sugar well, right. I think it's more for keeping some energy levels up but not necessarily giving it food in your stomach to eat. So that's my theory anyway. <laughs> well, as long as it works, if you, if you clear up in a couple of days, then that's just great. Um, and my thinking is much the same. I, I can't stand tea, but uh, I just cut down on the food and I don't go anywhere. Um, and only, as Sam says, use Imodium if I need it. But if you need it, boy, you really need it. Good uh, list there, Sam. Thank you very much. And, and can you give that to us so we can put it in the show notes as well? Yeah, of course I can, for sure. Okay. That'd be great. So you can go to the show notes and, and see Sam's list for the first aid kit. That, that's nice to have. That really is. I'm glad you did that because um, that's, a, that's a big thing for people to sort out. And I think someone had mentioned there, I think it was Grant that said that when you take a first aid course, they'll often uh, run you through what you should be taking. But one of the things I was going to throw in there is that the first aid courses are rarely, if ever, maybe at one of uh, the hub meets they might be. But other than that, they're not going to be motorcycle focused. Actually, which now that I've said that, that's a good idea good reason why you should go to a, a hub meet, I guess, and, and take one of the first aid courses there because you're talking with people who know motorcycling. But otherwise, if you just sign up for a St. John's one, it's great, but it won't be motorcycle focused. Now, you need to ask questions like, what about road rash? And what, what about I crash and I'm lying on the road broken? What do I do? Um, that's the thing that you need to add in your own little tidbits for and make sure they understand. Yes, I'm thinking motorcycle accidents. What do I do? Plus, of course, 90% of it is not the motorcycle accident. It's the general medical. You, you go hiking, you go climbing, you go do whatever sort of exciting things you want to do on your trip because, of course, it's not all riding. You're out there doing other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So you need to focus on those other things too. Yeah, burns, cuts, blisters, those sorts of things. Yep. Usually fairly yep. minor stuff, but it, it can get bad if you don't treat it right. Yeah. You know, there are an awful lot of things that you can do that actually mean that you never even have to get your first aid kit out in the, um, at all. And a lot of those things are down to just taking care of yourself. You know, I know people who end up using, you know, their, um, their antiseptic um, cream or, or powder because they end up with crotch rot because they haven't been washing properly or changing their cl clothes enough. Um and, you know, it's, th it's things like um, treating wounds, um, small wounds, really quickly and really carefully. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this when Grant was talking about mosquito bites. So many people scratch their mosquito bites and I've Ooh. seen some horrendous wounds that have happened because people have been scratching mosquito bites, dirty fingers, um, leaving the, the open wounds then to the air. The flies have come and settled on them and actually... 
if they'd not scratched or if they can't resist scratching and they'd covered that up with a sticking plaster once they'd opened it with a little bit of antiseptic, then the next stage just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. The last two trips I've done, both to Romania, have both been with girls. And girls are great because even when they're not on motorbikes, they're never more than three foot from a wet wipe. They've always got one at arm's length. <laughs> and they're really handy for you know, the same thing. You know, if, if you just... If you if you have scratched your mosquito bite or you can't help it or whatever or just dirty hands when you're gonna eat some street food, it, wet wipes aren't something I always think of, but girls always do, and so um, they're they're useful little things just to stop tummy getting runny tummy and stuff like that. So that's a good point. So you can either pack girls or if you didn't want the extra weight, you can just take wet wipes. <laughs> you know, I or remember if I just stop a girl, flag down a girl and just say, can I borrow a wet wipe, love? <laughs> good road so advice from Graham. I remember when Ewan and Charlie did um, Long Way Round and I can't remember which section of the film it was, but I, I, think it was, I think it was Charlie who was saying what a godsend wet wipes were. And there was a sort of groan that went round the overlanding world. What? You use wet wipes? And I tell you what, the number of people that I meet using wet wipes nowadays <laughs> that are just blown away by them make infinite sense. Well, that's because they were really diaper wipes to begin with, weren't they? I did accidentally buy some diaper wipes when I was in Turkey and couldn't read the label. And I decided to clean the inside of my visor um, with it. And then it smelt like scented diapers for about three days. <laughs> that's, that's the downside. <laughs> well, anything to add uh, here with the first aid talk? Uh, oh, I know. That I had something else uh, to think of, too, was disposable latex or vinyl gloves is a good idea, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah we missed potentially that. rehydration salts. Just a small packet. If you need more than a small packet of rehydration salts, you better get yourself to somewhere where you can get more anyway. But one will get you to the nearest spot. I have added that to the list, Grant. Ooh. Yeah. And yeah. for people like me, I get uh, really dry eyes, so saline eye drops. Okay. And if, you're, if you wear glasses, spare. In fact, mm. in some parts, I think it's France, you're, you, you must have a spare pair of glasses or they can actually ticket you if you don't Is have spare right? glasses. Really? Yeah. I yeah didn't it's know a that. significant fine. You must have spares. That was another thing that happened to me in Turkey. My glasses had broke, lost, whatever. I needed another set of reading glasses. And I'd gone into a Turkish market and all I needed was, you know, magnifying glasses plus 1.25 or whatever they are. And I found a lady who had a big Hessian sack full of glasses and I was trying them on. And she gave me this piece of paper with uh, this writing in, in, in different size fonts. And uh, having found a pair I thought I wanted, uh, she gave me the paper look at it and I said, no, they don't work. I can't read a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I think it's important to take a pair of reading glasses with you, especially for those uh, like Graham that, that are getting older. Um, not myself. I'm not <laughs> including myself in there. But Yeah, thanks for that, Jim. No, I'll tell you what, though, and also because I by accident once, I bought some plus three ones, which are mega magnified. But that's great for when, because more often, as, as our, probably our listener group is sort of reaching that age where their eyesight's deteriorating, when you're looking at an engine and the light's not ideal and you're trying to tinker with it, if you've got some more magnified glasses, which you wouldn't even be able to walk in because they're so blurry, they can be great for looking at those black holes in the engine for a, a lost washer or a sheared off bolt or something mm -hmm. like that. So actually some over-magnified glasses are, are kind of useful. 
Yeah, you could you could do that as a backup. Take the over magnification as a backup and use it just for doing the the fine stuff. I, I, obviously, you found the same thing that I have with the sun getting dimmer these last few years. It's more difficult to read. <laughs> <laughs> Move to a brighter country. <laughs> yeah, it looks brighter. <laughs> Sam, did you have something else to add? Yeah, I did. Um, it goes back to the listing side of things. One thought, it's well worth having in your medical kit prescriptions from your doctor for anything that you particularly need to carry. And if you've taken um, prescription medicines out of the boxes, at least keep the side of the box, which has it very clearly listed, what um, the drug is and what quantities that you should be taking. And, and you know, have that list of those prescription drugs and how often you're supposed to be taking them in with your ICE stuff. Um, it, it's, yeah, it, anything that you can do to make life simple for whoever finds you in a dire situation makes an awful lot of sense. But having the original and stru- instructions... Yourself, and, I'm sorry, Sam, but have for yourself as well, because you, if you don't know what you're carrying, there's no point in carrying it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's too right. And I was going to say, it's good to have a backup as well. It's good to have a backup of, of your drugs. So if you have your main ones that you're taking there, to have a, your second set placed somewhere else in your pack mm-hmm. or somewhere else on your bike. So if anything happens, it got stolen, it got damaged, whatever the case was, you've got backups and especially for the critical things and that would also go for an EpiPen with anybody with a uh, anaphylactic shock uh, or chance for anaphylactic shock no absolutely and you know having those instructions um, and the label is also important when you're crossing borders there are still countries that are very suspicious of people who are carrying unmarked tablets um, that aren't relating directly um, to the person who's carrying them. So, you know, that labelling and the prescription make an awful lot of sense. And also, you know, if, let, let's say something goes wrong and you damage the drugs that you're carrying, the prescription drugs. Well, if you've got a copy of the actual prescription, then you're more likely to get a local doctor or pharmacy um, to give you the drugs that you need when they can see the medical proof that you need those things. Yeah, good idea. Oh, the other one that just popped into my mind was the uh, your certificate of vaccination, a yellow fever card, mm-hmm. depending on where you're going. Make sure you've got that and and it's kept up to date. Yep. So at this point, we would normally go on to our second second topic, but for this episode, what we did is we tried an experiment, and despite what Graham had implied earlier that I was too lazy to work on a second topic, <laughs> the idea was spontaneity. So as you guys know, I mentioned it, you know, we'll come up with something that you were interested in talking about here. So I'm going to throw it right back over to the hospital bed and, and see what, what Graham has been up to. <laughs> Well, <laughs> luckily, <laughs> I have got something. To uh, I, the, the other issue with is is the food issue. Last time I was here, for it's kind of funny that, that you order your food and um, whatever you order or was ordered for me, which was chicken and potatoes, came comes at twelve o'clock. Two plates of it, one for lunch and one for dinner. And I got chicken and potatoes for nine days. And I, I haven't been able to get anywhere. And at first I was, oh, yum, this is kind of nice. And the next day I was picking at it. And that, last time I was here, it was wintertime. There's a lot of snow on the ground. I'm on the 10th floor. And uh, I was throwing it out to the stray cats because they were telling me off, saying, you've got to eat, you've got to eat. I'm not eating this. So I was throwing it out for the stray cats in the end. <laughs> but, um, so the point is, what I did this time is I bought a bunch of food with me. 
and uh, just some breakfast stuff and some fruits and everything. And today, with my Swiss Army knife, I was cutting open a roll, cutting up some tomato and cutting up some cheese. And as I was doing that, I thought, this isn't unlike a panya snack. This is the sort of thing that I would pull out the side of the road, chop up on the side of a panya and eat. And then that made me think, I wonder what some good tips for panya snacks are. I generally do have tomato and cheese. I, once I get sort of real Germany and then east of Germany, all the shops all sell these sort of Polish sausages. There's all types of those, and I really enjoy them. I never quite know what I'm getting. They vary in taste. And I mean, you, you can be a connoisseur of these things because sometimes there's like shelves, like, I don't know, five metres long with all these varying ones. But they're always good. So they're things that are always in my sort of roadside spontaneous panya snack um case and uh, i was just wondering if anybody else had some good tips on what what they uh, take for those little snacky times i gotta say i am so glad you came up with I mean, you you and i must be on the same same wavelength at some level because i had one pot meals that i was talking about feeding the body on trips is exactly it a great subject <laughs> <laughs> so i i i sam you have to have special one-pot meals. One-pot meals, the reason I say one-pot meals is because, as everybody knows, I think, for, for the most part, um, you've got to have something that's simple to make. Usually you're going to have one burner when you're on your bike, and you've got to be able to cook it all in one burner or one pan or whatever it is that you're carrying. And you want to keep it simple too, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, Burgess and I cooked uh, a meal for 11 with one pot and um, our burner one time when we were in um, Guatemala, actually. We were staying in a backpackers hostel and it got to dinner time and everybody was saying, well, let's go out to eat. None of us have got any food. And Birgit and I said, well, we've got a stack of stuff. Come on, we'll just get cooking. And um, our one pot meal was fairly standard for us, a stack of pasta. You can pick up pasta just about anywhere in the world. Tomato paste, you can pick that up anywhere in the world. Onions, garlic, likewise with those. Tins of tuna. We always buy the tins of tuna which are in oil. Because we can use, we can drain that oil off into um, the pan, and we can fry the onions and fry the garlic before mixing everything else in, um, and any other thing that local that we've managed to pick up, fresh peppers and that sort of stuff. And um, we'll uh, you, we'll buy packets of um, you know instant cup of soup, and you can buy those in them um, all over the world too. And um, just mix it all together, use the cup of soup as a sauce, and um, hey presto, you've got a, a really good filling meal. And if you can buy some fresh vegetables and so on, which you normally can, then yeah, very healthy cooking. Yeah, the big thing is, is trying to keep it down as far as the number, like I said, of pots that you're, you're going to use. So the one pot thing is absolutely fantastic. I was going to say, Grant, what were you shopping for mainly for meals? We'd shop for just about whatever was available to a large extent. Um, we'd see, oh, that looks interesting. Haven't had that for a while, so we'll make something out of that. Uh, we're pretty flexible. I think uh, the, the basic is we always had some um, macaroni noodles and things, something like that, so you could have quick pasta. And with pasta, you can toss just about anything in the way of vegetables in. Uh, if you've got some meat, you can chop that up and toss it in, and it's all good one pot. It works really well. A uh, can of tomato sauce and you're away. Or tuna, we always had cans of tuna for sure. Mm. Uh, occasionally salmon, you can find it. Uh, but tuna was really a, a real staple a lot of times. Um, we always had, were able to buy bread. So we always, Susan's favorite is Nutella. She always carried a can of Nutella. When she discovered Nutella, it was wonderful. Um, I always go for a can of uh, peanut butter. Uh, that's always good energy. Quick, easy, simple, and it keeps really well. Mm. 
So those would be kind of our, our favorites, but mostly it was what is the local market got that we think we might be able to make something out of? Mm. I think you, you don't try, you don't want to get into stuck into something, uh, a particular, always the same thing. You get really, really bored of your own cooking, which is where you end up going to restaurants a lot, uh, which ends up adding to your costs for traveling. So just being flexible and eating local and saying, oh, I haven't seen one of those for a while. Let's have some of that and we'll make something with that. You got to be flexible and open and kind of go with what the local cuisine is. Uh, depending on where you are, you may find in, in Tunisia you'll have certain kinds of foods are available and popular and there's that kind of spice. And then you'll be in Zimbabwe or Argentina and, oh, Argentina, I guess we're in Argentina. It's going to be lots of meat, different kinds of meat. And then you're really scrounging hard trying to find some vegetables. Uh, but uh, I think flexibility and trying to do something remotely similar to local food so that you're kind of into the local instead of being stuck on your food. I'm always reminded of this um, people somebody met in, I think it was Namibia, some people from a northern European nation who had driven all the way from Europe to Namibia and they were still eating their own food from their country and proud of it. And I think, oh my dear, that, that's just so sad. You're not interfacing with the locals. You're not meeting the locals. You're not shopping with the lo in the local markets. You're not getting the local experience. You're not eating local food. You're not. You're not traveling. You're. You're in your own little microcosm of your transplanted world, and that's just horrible. So I local, totally so, agree, yeah. Grant. Local local food and getting stuck into the local culture as a um, through food is so important. You know, we we travelled to. I travelled for a little while with a German guy, and he had both of his aluminium panniers full of meal-size Ziploc muesli bags with powdered milk mixed in. And yep. that was what he was living on, um, yep. three well, meals a day. Here is a true story. A Canadian, I'm embarrassed to admit, a Canadian had the world's largest top box. And no, it wasn't mine because mine is not the world's largest. Uh, the world's largest top box full of freeze-dried food heading for South America. He had enough for a year. Like I think I might have me? met him in Panama City. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. In fact, so there I you have go. photographs of that top box. It was huge. Is there still, yeah. Was there still food in it at that point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, this guy had a lot of, um, a lot of food. Uh, you know, my attitude was, well, look, you know, if he wants to do it that way, then he's, um, at least he's out on the road exploring and discovering and, and new things. And hopefully um, the world will corrupt him in the right way along the way. Yeah. He um, will learn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when yeah. Birgit and I were in southern Argentina, we'd pulled into a camping site and um, uh, Greg Frazier was on the camping site. And um, after we set up the tent and um, Greg sort of wandered over towards us and um, had a, a, a few brief words and then said, are you hungry? Well, yeah, um, I've got a snack, he said. And he discovered that um, in many small supermarkets in Argentina, you can buy by the gram um, cubed luncheon meat and olives. And you just sort of scoop it up and put it in a plastic bag and they wear it and off you go. And that combined with vodka makes a very nice evening snack. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sounds like Greg. We always carried um, curry powder with us and um, mixed herbs because mm -hmm. we felt we could turn an awful lot of very bland food into interesting things if we, if we had those things. Yeah, Susan's favorite is Mrs. Dash. Mm. I don't know, you can't get it everywhere, but Mrs. Dash is an amazing spice for just about everything. Excellent, yep. 
Yeah. It's Where'd you get that? I was, I was, I was going to ask, where, what sort of staples are you carrying? If you are carrying staples, maybe go back to Graham because he's talking about cutting stuff up on your pannier, which lunches, yeah, you want, you want to be, you know, you want to keep it very simple. But um, what sort of staples are you carrying, Graham? Well, actually, I don't take a stove anymore. Um, I can't cook at home, so I don't know what made me think I could cook on the road. I've tried the MRS stoves. I've tried the Primus stoves. I've never had a stove that I've got on with. They've always been a pain in the ass. They've required cleaning. They've leaked. They haven't worked. I know it's just my experience, but I've not got on with stoves. Then you've got to have your, your pans. Then you've got to have your washing up liquid. Then you've got to have your sponge. Then you've got to have your silverware. Then you've got to have your actual food, your, confident, uh, your condiments. Then you've actually got to know how to cook. And I, so sod it. I save all that space and I don't do that now. I'm not a person who can't function in the morning without a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. I can drink water. It's fine. So if I do wild camp and I like to wild camp, I, like I say, well, like Grant was saying, for the supermarkets, just what's ever local, try and have some fruit. So I've got some tomatoes, bananas, and meat, and, uh, and always bread. And actually, the more stale it is, the easier it is to carry because it doesn't crush. And then I've got muesli bars, I've, my emergency muesli bars, which quite often come home with me because I always wonder if I might have a bigger emergency than the one I'm having at the moment. And so maybe I should save it until the next emergency. <laughs> so really, quite often, breakfast has a strong resemblance to what dinner was. But I'm on my own. I've only got myself to worry about. Camping solo is not really a joy. So you tend to, if you have found a place, it's because of the scenery, because of the sunset, because of the river. And I've got more time to indulge in that. I eat to stop myself feeling hungry. The next morning, if I really need something, I've got a muesli bar. And at the next town, I'll stop and have some breakfast. If I'm not wild camping, then there is um, a restaurant or somewhere to eat around. And I'm not necessarily a restaurant person, but there's always street food. There's always places where the local meet. And if you said, you know, that is one of the wonderful experiences about the country is discovering their food. How anybody could go through Central America with freeze-dried food and miss out on all that food is one of the <laughs> highest, highest joys of Mexico and Guatemala and, and that. So, um, so no, I, so I, I take enough to sustain me, but Cooking is not something I enjoy, not something I'm good at. So I don't have a way of heating food or take food that needs heating. I think that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Don't you make tea or coffee at all, though? Well, I used to when I carried a stove, and that was all I used it for. And like I say, I can live without. I can get up in the morning, drink some water, and ride for two hours before I really need it. I don't need it. I'm not one of these person who's a zombie until they've had their little morning hot drink ritual. So because I don't need it, I don't carry it. And if I'm happy with someone who has got it, then it's a real luxury that they make some coffee in the morning. But it's not a necessity to my day. So the hidden lesson there would be make a friend that has a cook set. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I did travel <laughs> with a guy actually um, in Ukraine. And I couldn't believe how little room he had in his panniers. They were absolutely packed. I think space is one of the most important things to have in your panniers for when you do want to pick, stop and pick something up. We, we wild camp one night. And he made this amazing meal. He had a couple of two or three pots going and, uh, and he had all these condiments and all these spices. And it was spectacular. But it was something he got great amount of joy and satisfaction out of. And he said, you know, prior to being with me, he stopped at a lake for a couple of days just on his own. And he would spend three hours making a meal. Well, that's great. If that's where you get your fun, then absolutely not knocking it. But that's not where I get my fun. That is not something that I do. So wonderful when you come across those people. Um, 
and perhaps I could have picked up some tips, but instead I just wandered around and <laughs> ate when I was ready, <laughs> when it was ready. <laughs> I eat simply um, too when I'm, when I'm on the bike. I, I tend to not go overboard. I mean, I do like cooking good meals when I'm camping. It's fun. I do it all the time in different situations. But when I'm on the bike, I tend to be pretty simple with it so that it's it's the same as you. You know, you come into camp and something very basic. I do carry a small billy though, a, a small kettle, an MSR kettle and uh, and my stove. And quite often I'll just go with my, my wood stove rather than an MSR stove or anything like that. My little wood stove, I can pick up enough wood and, and get it going and make uh, coffee or tea and coffee is just, uh, you know, your instant stuff. But but I tend to be fairly simple with it too. We'll I was smiling when you guys are talking about this because this this last trip around the States, um, I bought one of these um, little, tiny little gas cookers. Um, and normally I'll, I'll ride with petrol stove because, of course, then I've always got fuel on tap. Um, but in the States, hey, gas is fine. Um and um, over the seven weeks, I think I used this thing four times. Yeah. And sorry, Sam, I hate to rain in your parade, but those gas cylinders are horrible for the environment. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, definitely. Petrol and one of the gasoline. reasons that we use... Sorry, Grant. Sorry, I was going to say petrol or gasoline out of your tank is definitely the preferred way to go. It's certainly a lot easier and you can replace that anytime, whereas the... Uh, butane pet uh, propane cylinders are such a pain to replace and every country has a different standard it's also yep. easy to meter too you know how much fuel you have when you're using gas or even if you use white gas but I, I wouldn't use white gas but if you're using gasoline you know how much fuel you have you know how much you can use whereas the cylinder you screw it on and you think there's some in there and you get partway through your meal or almost through cooking your meal and the thing dies and you don't have a backup yeah, yeah. Um, no, i totally agree um petrol is the way to go yeah I was going to say that uh, for us, we found that we never cooked breakfast. We never even bothered getting the stove out for breakfast. We always just did uh, some kind of muesli, cereal, whatever. Um, we always carried powdered milk, which worked great. New Zealand powdered milk is the best and available all over Africa. And um, mix that with a little water. If you can pick up some fruit at the local market, wash that and away you go. That would be a great breakfast, maybe with some bread and peanut butter or Nutella as your choices dictate. And then we just make sandwiches on the road for lunch. Um, or if we were in a town, we'd definitely eat in a restaurant of some kind, street food, whatever, and then cook for dinner. And that worked pretty well for us. And the, the, I think the reason for not cooking in the morning was we didn't have to clean up again, which means that it takes you a lot longer to pack. Just cleaning a couple of bowls and toss them in your kit and away you go. It's much quicker to get rolling in the morning than getting out the stove and cleaning up and major operation to just just to have breakfast. It's just, you know, like such a waste of time. I'm gobsmacked, Grant. I thought that you would be a real fan of the full Canadian breakfast. Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> Let's not talk about full English. I've had, uh, when we were at the Hub UK meeting, I had a full English breakfast every morning. If I don't see another full English breakfast until next year, it'll be too soon. <laughs> what is Can't the full, handle it. What's a full English breakfast? Sam, tell them. <laughs> well, a full English breakfast, funnily enough, I'll give you some history first. A full English breakfast um, was actually developed by the Romans. And, and this is true. The squaddies, um, the Roman squaddies, they used to carry as part of their packs bacon. And they would scavenge for whatever they could get along the way on their marches. So eggs and mushrooms and, you know, that sort of stuff. And that was how the full English breakfast developed. So a full English breakfast, if you get in the, the full whammy, then you've got some thick cut bacon, sausages, baked beans, fried eggs, fried potato, mushrooms, um, 
And yeah, nowadays you'll find hash browns creeping in, but I don't think that's a full English. That's um, that's a bit, a bit of American um, coming in too. Um, wow. But you eat one of those and you can keep going until dinner time. But we never have um, anything other than what Grant's just been describing for breakfast. It's too much fag. You know, you've got a day coming up to ride, so let's get on with it. But the time we do cook meals um, is particularly when it's cold. Um, then we'll aim to have a hot meal in us at the end of the day. And um, the other time that we use our stove a lot is for boiling water. We tend not to use water purifying tablets um, yeah. and not anymore carry the weight of um, a, uh, a pump for cleaning water. So we'll arrive at a, um, wherever we're going to camp. And the first thing that um, happens is that the billy will go on and um, make a cup of tea while we're putting the tent up and then we'll be boiling the water for our bottles for the next day. And um, that works. That works very well. Yeah, inside my my little teapot, what I do is I put in my oatmeal that I'll have for breakfast. If I'm going to have something, my instant coffee, um, some tea bags, and all that all that stuff, including my my creamer for my coffee because I take creamer with it, but I don't take sugar. Um, put that all inside the the teapot, and it's in a ziploc so I can pull it out. And it's quite a compact little unit, and you can put really about five days worth of stuff in there, at least for for breakfast. That works. Keep it simple is the best thing for breakfast, I think. Trying to do a major is just too much work. So, Sam, what do you have? <laughs> um, well, when you said think of something, my brain went completely blank. <laughs> so I said to Birgit, come on, help me with this. And we were sort of walking through the town this evening um, talking about this idea and that idea and couldn't settle on one at all. We got home and I was thinking, right, okay, Jim's going to put me on the spot with this and I'm going to be stuffed. <laughs> and I, was, I stopped thinking about it for about 10 minutes and then I thought, actually, do you know, what, what was the, the favourite accessory that I put on my overlanding bike? And I wondered what everybody else's favourite mm. accessory was. Now, mine um, was an additional tail light, and it came about in Pakistan. I had a, a fuse to um, the, the rear light that kept on popping and I couldn't find why it was shorting out and it was driving me dotty. And I was running out of fuel, um, fuses and it wasn't always easy to get hold of them. And of course, they were expensive because of where I was. And um, one day I was down to my last couple and I stopped off at one of these little roadside stalls as I was going through Pakistan. And this guy was selling um, from a really ramshackle, beaten up old, old stall made out of poles of wood and bits of old hessian and plastic and so on. But um, he had car headlights and brake lights and fuses and oh, just all sorts of other accessories hanging up in, in and around this place. And I said to the guy, you know, I've got this problem. Have you got any fuses? These are the ones that I need. And he said, oh you're having problem with your fuses? And I said, well, yeah, I keep blowing the one for the brake light. And he said, oh, mister, uh, the solution is very simple. Just add an extra brake light and you will dissipate the power and you will blow no more fuses. And I thought, well, I'll try it. It doesn't make sense to me, but hey, why not? And he sold me this wonderful additional tail light, which had stop written across it. And I stuck this on the bike and wired it in, and I never popped another fuse. And um, so that was my favorite accessory along the way, not only because it stopped the fuses blowing, but um, it had stop written on it, and it raised my awareness for traffic behind me that I was stopping. 
I like that. I was going to give you a tip. If you, if you have um, something that's shorting out on your bike, for instance, it keeps blowing fuses, one of the ways that you can try and find that is by, instead of putting a fuse in that just pops every time it shorts out, is you can put in a bulb or even better, a buzzer. Then what you do is you start wiggling your wires around. And when that bulb lights up, you know you're getting close to the short or the, or the ground or whatever it is that you're that you're experiencing with that without blowing the fuse. And it, it, it makes it easier to find these things rather than um, keep blowing the fuse. But I thought yeah, I'd throw top that in tip. There. Yep, good one. So, Grant, what, what's your favorite accessory? I, I'll bet favorite. you got tons of accessories too. You've well, got to say that, that first. Are you an accessory person? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> That's a really tough one to answer fairly. <laughs> uh, I like accessories that actually improve the bike and are better than original or make life and riding easier or more fun. Um, I'm, I'm not a Farkle guy that just buys everything there is out there. I mean, I see this all the time. People buy all kinds of stuff and this, and this goes for your camping equipment and everything else. It's kind of, you, you walk into a store that sells motorcycle accessories or camping equipment and, Ooh, I've never seen one of those before. I must need it. I just, I just didn't know I needed it. So you buy it. And that's why people send us uh, all kinds of emails saying, I just sent another box of shit that I thought I needed home that uh, I spent all kinds of money on and wasted money on and haven't used it in the last six months. Um, I should have asked, what would Susan say? (laughs) (laughs) As far as me? Oh, her favorite accessory would be very simple, electric vest. What would she say about you being a Farkle addict? Am I a Farkle addict, Susan? No. She says no. Well, she says no. That's definitive right there. Yeah, there you go. But that's good to know. So her pick would be the favorite, the favorite thing would be her vest. Oh, without a doubt. Um, she won't go anywhere without it. I mean, we, we actually went for a ride last week, which is history and, sh- and is in Facebook and everything else because this is something we rarely get a chance to do. Uh, the last time we actually went for a day ride, I can't remember when, but it was certainly at least last year. Uh, anyway, we went for a ride, and this is summer in British Columbia, but we were going up towards Whistler and around Pemberton, and that's kind of mountains. So were the electric vests in the saddlebag? Oh, yes, without a doubt. It never got below about 22 degrees, but there was a point there where, you know, up around Whistler, you start thinking, hmm, electric time vest, vest time yet? Not quite, but almost. But, uh, yeah, that's that's probably top of our list for things we will take almost automatically is an electric vest and have it wired in with a, an adjustable control. Uh, I think people tend to poo-poo electric vests, but I can tell you, anybody who's got one will never ride without it again. No, oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you, Grant. My goodness. We we rode for seven years or seven and a half years of, of the eight-year trip without them. We didn't even know the things existed. Does that show our ignorance or what? But as soon as we got heated waistcoats, wow. Gosh, it was, it was warmer to be on the bike riding in the freezing cold than it was to be off the bike stomping up and down. Yeah, and I'll tell you, one thing you don't do is get off the bike and leave the electric vest plugged in with the engine not running. It's uh-huh. really embarrassing. Um, but about, an, about an hour later, um, try and start the bike, and it doesn't. But it's so nice standing there, warm and toasty. <laughs> That's definitely a good tip. <laughs> don't ask me how I know. <laughs> do you, you realize the irony in that, Grant? I mean, you're saying that that's the first ride you've got out on for so long. Oh, I know. I mean, we have ridden on occasion, um, but we literally insured the bike about three weeks ago. Wow. You know, most people would look at what you're doing in your life and say, man, you are doing it right. But there's something wrong with that part of it. 
Well, the, the flaw is that we go to all these events and we go to all these wonderful countries and we meet wonderful people and we have a great time, but we usually fly, long flight, get in a rental car, drive to the venue, meet everybody, have a wonderful time, get back in the rental car and fly somewhere else. And yeah, that part of it really sucks. It's Are you the, riding to Nacusp? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Mm. I got to figure out how to get a whole truckload of stuff up there. I'll probably end up paying somebody to take it up or pay the uh, pay UPS to deliver it. But I'm riding for sure. That's that's a must. Well, I'll be coming by your place, but I'm going to be riding my bike, too. So if there's something small I can help with, that's fine. Uh, no, we're talking last time our car went up. We've got a Mazda 3 hatchback. The back of the car was full mm. to the top. So, yeah, there's a fair bit of stuff. So if anybody out there is heading towards the cusp uh, in a couple of weeks for the event and is in the Vancouver area and would like to drop by and pick up a load of stuff and take it, bring it back down for us, please send me an email. So, Graham, if you're still awake, what's your favorite accessory? And I'll bet it's going to be it's... aluminum and it's going to sit on your tank. Oh, I didn't consider that. <laughs> <laughs> because you have the only one probably in the world, I would think. I don't think anymore because despite the controversy of it, there have been people who have uh, who have looked at it and said, oh, that is exactly what I need. That is exactly what I need. And I've put them in touch with Zen Overland. So I think since he, he has made others, so it's not as exclusive and, uh, as What's it was. That? But I wasn't, I wasn't considering that. Um, well, what is it? What is it, Graham? It's, it's the ones, what I like are the ones that I've made myself. Because I get a great deal of satisfaction, not an engineer by any degree, but I get a great deal of satisfaction over uh, improvising. And I'll get my ideas from the shiny catalogs and then go to the garage and see how I can do that thing. I mean, the KLR was always about doing it on a budget. And I got um, a deep fat fryer, um, the inner bit, the, the sort of the gauzy bit, and I made that into a headlight protector. Uh, I put a big hose clip, Jubilee clip around the front mud garden that hold my Scott Oiler bottle. I got a, a, well, initially a toilet roll holder, which I put on the bottom in, by the um, bash plate, and that's where I put my tools. But unfortunately, Kazakhstan and Mongolia killed the toilet roll holder, and I'm now onto a, a, an aluminium tube, an aluminium tube, with these two uh, drain covers, four-inch drain covers, which are on hose clips that you do up each side. And that's one of my favorites because all the tools in there, the weight is distributed at the front of the bike. It couldn't be any lower. And, uh, I mean, the only the sniffer dogs are always interested in it at Baldur's, and uh, they want to know what's in it. But it's innocent. It's just tools. But that's a really good accessory. But the other thing with the European KLRs is because of the way the fairings are, you can't put a screen on them. The, the US spec ones are great because not only do they come with a screen, but you can get taller screens. And I, I don't want to have all that buffeting. Uh, my KLR came with a, a sort of an aftermarket screen, which didn't work terribly well. I bolted a bit of another screen on it. It sort of worked a bit. I got broken. I've been through several screens over the years. And I recently bought um, a Triumph Tiger, and one of the things in the advert, all the accessories was, it comes with three different screens, because this guy had tried all the screens before he found one that worked, and the original Triumph screen and some Givy screens and various things all came with the Triumph. And I just thought, I wonder if one of those will fit on the KLR. Man, did it fit. It was perfect. It's, it's got these two little uprights to clamp on the bar, and these two 
little clips that go on there. And then with the, the Triumph mountain bracket, which was, no more, which was no longer used because the aftermarket one was on the Tiger, I managed to put it on my little nose fairing. And it sort of kinks in at the bottom and it kinks in right around my master cylinder as if it's made to measure. I rode it down from, the, from London in February and I was, I was coming through the winter. I spent more time looking at the screen than I did through the screen because this is so cool. This fits perfectly. So that's one of my favorite accessories. Okay, I'm still curious what you had on the tank. <laughs> the tank box, do you not know about the tank box, Grant? Oh, no. um, well, it's been spoken about some time, but what it is, uh, got a very uh, big camera, and if it's in the panniers, I never bother using it. And what I wanted was something which made it instantly accessible, had it um, dustproof, shockproof, waterproof, secure. But ultimately, I could just flip a lid, pull it out, and get those spontaneous shots. And so I had this uh, aluminium tank box that fits on my um, uh, my IMS tank. And that was for the trip down to Iraq and Azerbaijan and, and that. And it just worked spectacularly. And yeah. for instance, I, I did a trip in the States on a KLR that I've got in the States, and, it, and that didn't have the tank box. And so the camera sat in the pannier. It didn't get used not even half as much. Mm -hmm. So for me, having a nice camera was only half of it. Having it instantly accessible was the other half. And for that reason, the tank box works perfectly. But yep. it's very controversial, and I've spoken about it many times, and there's yeah. links on my website to my long rant about the tank box. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can talk about tank boxes as well, because uh, I made one back in 1987 and put it on our bike for a around-the-world trip. I loved it. It was wonderful. You had an aluminum box on your tank on top? Yeah. Yeah. You look at any of the pictures, there's this white box on top of a white tank and that's an aluminum box. Oh, I, I saw, I thought it was just on the side. I've seen the picture before of your bike. I thought it was just on the sides and it was well, quite elaborate. Well, there's big saddlebags on the side. Yes. But there's also a tank box, which nobody notices because they always look at the back end, but the tank box is there. Yeah. Um, or it was 90, 97 when I did the tank box, not in, not 87. And had it for the second part of the trip around the world, and it worked really well. Just one key opens it up, lifts it up, camera sat in there, along with a kind of selection of lenses, and away we went. It was great. Well, I'm horrified. You and Graham are obviously from the same gene pool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I tend to make things too. I like, I mean, all the stuff on my R80GS is made by me, um, sometimes with some help from, from some others, of course. Because uh, I'm a crap welder, but uh, if you can make it yourself and it works, why not? I mean, the original build on my bike was because all you could get was terrible plastic saddlebags, which weren't very big, and fiberglass boxes, which were terrible. So I made aluminum boxes and made all of that stuff and made mounting brackets, and it was all custom made. There's nothing on that bike other than the original bike that was actually bought. It's all handmade. Had to be fact, I think when you get to poorer countries as well, they have much more appreciation of these things. They look at them because they have ingenuity and they, they uh, make their things from scratch. And I think you get much more respect from people when they can see I made like a homemade fork brace and stuff. When they see these things, than you would if you just had something out of a catalogue. It's a conversation point. And I think it's, uh, it's another way of connecting with the locals. Sure. They like it. I agree. Uh, who made your box anyway, your tank box? Uh, it was a company called Zen Overland in Wales. Oh, Zen. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Gabriel. Gabe Bolton. 
You know Gabe, yeah, of course you do. Oh, of course I know but, Gabe. Um, um, he did – I remember him looking at my tank box and mumbling something about making one uh, years ago. So maybe – obviously he's finally done it. He's producing something. Well, yeah, I mean I, I, I went to well, – actually, I think I was in – I don't know where I was. I think it was in Mexico when I came up with the idea, riding along and contemplating what I wanted, sent him some original ideas, and then went actually stayed up there and made a carpool template, uh, and we put it on my tank, and then – he made the aluminium thing, which was very substantial, and it arrived about two days before I was ready to leave to go off to uh, sort of uh, Iraq and what have you. And the first thing is, does the camera fit? And it, with because you have to put padding in there as well. Yes, it of did. Course. And the second thing was, what does it look like when it's on the bike? And it was just fastened on with the little clips that you um, that you sort of clap, clip on around a backpack or something like that. Mm -hmm. Four, three of these clips, one at the front, or two at the front, one at the back. So one clip and it comes off sideways so you can fill it up with, fill the tank up. And uh, no, worked absolutely spectacularly. So, uh, and, and it's been on several trips since. That's how good it is. The flaw with it, of course, is that it's fairly substantial and solid if you should hit something. Um, and it's in the way and could break your ribs and things like that. So, I mean, I'm not well, a that's fan. That's what people said, but... I fall off a lot, and it's never hurt me. And also, if it wasn't there, I'd be moving far more forward, a lot faster, and get a lot more momentum by the time I did hit something. I could only move about four inches before I hit it. I can't get enough momentum to hurt myself in that space. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting philosophy. What happened to those days of everyone making their own things? You know, that's how I sort of grew up. You know, you made things for the things that you want to do. And nowadays, it's, it seems that everybody just goes and buys the product off the shelf. And there's so much to choose from. All that's the difference. Professionally made. <laughs> The custom in bike the day, magazine in the UK, which was Backstreet Heroes, was about people who made their own stuff, made their own custom bikes. It wasn't adventure bikes, but it was still about ingenuity and just manufacturing in the shed. And, and people who can look at one thing and think how it could be something else on their bike. Bath rails, the little sort of handles that you get inside a bath and were turned into grab rails on the back of a mudguard. I think that's great ingenuity and improvisation. But... You know, the people inevitably, where there's ever there's a, a, a loophole in the market, businesses will fill that fill that that void, and that's where you get your advertisers from, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just think back to the early days of motorcycling. I mean, I started riding in '65, and there was a standard motorcycle, and there was a standard motorcycle, and that was it. I mean, fairings or anything like that just didn't exist for normal motorcycles. Uh, then Vetter came out with the Windjammer fairing, and all of a sudden now you've got every possible permutation and combination of fairings you could possibly imagine. Mm. Uh, in those days, if you wanted to do something different than what was readily available, which was basically manufacturer's stuff and a few small accessories, it wasn't much, you made it. You didn't have any choice because there just wasn't anything. Yeah. When, when I did our bike in 87 – there, I wanted to put on some aluminum boxes and I wanted to do this and I wanted to do that and I couldn't buy it. It didn't exist. So you made it. That was all there was to it. Now, it doesn't matter what you want. Somebody's made five different variations of what you want. There, there's no shortage of choice. Part of it is technology too, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the machinery has changed in a way that it's becoming um, a lot less expensive to manufacture things on a smaller level in a real high-tech way with computers and computer-assisted yeah. design. Well, there's so much now. I mean, I know people that make their own panniers, and I know that by the time you finish making it, you're not very far off the price of having just kind yeah. of bought one. 
that's already I been see. engineered and gone through multiple permutations and, and been tested and uh, and it's going to be better than anything you're going to make although it's not exactly what you wanted but it works fine yeah I, I, I agree with that entirely Grant I mean my panniers um, were handmade in a garden shed um, in Australia and Birgit and I made her panniers and we made them by talking to a school metalwork department and asking if we could use their cutting equipment for the aluminium and their folding equipment. And um, we drew up our own plans and worked out exactly how we were going to make them and went into the school when they closed down at the end of the day one day and um, did all the cutting and folding and then took all of the, the bits home and um, drilled and siliconed and all of the rest of it until they put together. And Birgit, um, yeah, she they're still the panniers that she uses now. And there was a great sense of satisfaction out of making them. But mm-hmm. in comparison to, for example, Jesse panniers, they're nothing like as good quality. Um, and, yeah, um, but there was a satisfaction of, of making them. Oh, yeah. was, and like Graham said, too, like you, you go somewhere, it's something that definitely draws a lot of attention and even respect from it. I mean, not that we're out for that, but I mean, there's something about it. You look at it, you think that's really neat. You know, like he's taken his, his deep fryer thing and he's made a headlight guard and that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. There's a huge satisfaction in making things. I mean, that's, that's something I like doing is making things better. And it's, it's kind of one of my fun things to do is I'll go out and I'll look at something and say, you know, that could be better. And I just make it better. And I'm, that feels really good. As opposed to going and buying it and saying, yeah, somebody else made it better, but at least I made the choice of what it was. I decided. <laughs> it's not quite the same level, though. Sam, I'll, I'll throw in my favorite Farkle. And I'm sort of along mm. the, the mindset of Grant that I, I don't like bolting a bunch of things onto the bike. I like improving it. I like doing it. And this is the same for me with everything. I like to improve it. But I don't like going nuts with a whole bunch of things because if it doesn't add to it, if it, doesn't, it doesn't make something better, then I'm, I'm not fond of it. But having said that, I, I love the things that you can add to a bike. It's great. I don't have a lot on my bike as far as accessories go. But the thing that that uh, I had to think about it at first, and I thought, oh, well, it's, it's hands down for me. And, and it probably goes against the grain of all of you guys for, for thought process. It's my, my driving lights that I've added on. And of course, the first thing that's going to pop into your head is, well, you shouldn't be riding at night. But when you do, these lights, they're rigid industry lights, and they're just these small square lights. I, I made I homemade a couple of brackets just out of aluminum. Actually, I went through a couple of versions. My first version was too weak, and they would bounce up and down until they finally break and fall off. So I had to go with the big, heavy-duty versions. But they're rough and, and rugged. And they're bolted on there, but these lights make all the difference. And when I ride at night, I can flick these things on and they light up. I've basically got them pointed sort of outward. So they light up the sides of the road and it is just an incredible difference in vision for me. So that to me has been the best thing that I've added. A little tip for you there. Mm-hmm. Have, the head, have those two lights cross. If you've got your left one pointing to the right, when you lean over, it illuminates around the corner even better. Whereas if you've, got a, if you've got the right one pointing right, as you lean over, it tilts down more and does a good job on the ditch, but does less good around the corner. Well, I like the thought process with this, but, but with that, but these are spots. So I think if I'm, if I'm aiming them crossed, I'm going to end up with more of a concentrated beam rather than a um, uh, sort of a strip down the road. I'll have to have a look at it. Yeah, play with it. Sometimes it works. I've done it more with uh, less with real spots, but more with something a little bit more flood than a spot rather than a full flood, and it's worked pretty well for me. 
So on the, the, the thought process that we're on here, Grant, what did yeah. you have? Uh, well, we, let's see. My original one was the uh, electric vest, but uh, from there, improved taillights. I've got uh, on my new GS, I've got uh, taillights that actually blink when you hit the brakes. And if you slow down, they blink and blink more rapidly. And that's, I think, really good. Um, I've got a GPS mount that's custom that's mounted up higher. A uh, few little details like that. I've got a completely different fairing because I love it. And it's a, the Touratech Desierto fairing, which means it's you, the name Desert tells you something. It's a summer fairing. It's a poor winter fairing, but it's wonderful in the summer. Biggest problem on the big GSAs is the uh, in the summer, that big screen is too hot. So you cook. And then in the winter, it's good. But I don't ride in the winter that often anymore. Um, so in the summer, having that little extra airflow that's smooth to me is the most important thing. Um, windscreens can be a real issue, in the, but the, the most important thing to me is I don't mind air hitting me. In fact, I like it in the summer, but I just want it to be smooth and not a lot of buffeting. So getting the right shape fairing, like uh, Graham was saying about the guy with the, the tiger went through a number of different screens to get the right one. Yeah, um, the sad thing is that that's kind of the only solution. Everybody's a different height. And trying to get the right screen for you and your height um, is, is can be really difficult because everybody's got a different body height, body length. Um, Susan and I, this is a really interesting size comparison. Susan and I are, I'm, five, I'm six feet, Susan's five foot four. We have the same leg inseam. We both have a 32-inch inseam. So what, what does that say about body height? Susan's so much lower in the upper body on the bike than I am. There's a huge difference in height. Um, so windscreen is going to be completely different shape, different size, different height, uh, different angle. Sometimes people try and um, lift the windscreen to very vertical in order to keep the wind off them. But often if you tilt it back, you smooth out the wind flow and it goes over the top of your helmet or maybe around the outside edges of your helmet. But it's not buffeting anymore. A very vertical windscreen is kind of a barn door, which creates a lot of buffeting around and immediately behind it so it's a fiddly thing to get a windscreen right so yeah that's i'm, I'm happy with this desierto fairing. it's very cool works very smooth very smooth air accessories are a funny thing aren't they because you know i've found that you know i don't, I don't have real deep pockets at all to go buy and try a bunch of accessories so what i often end up doing is using what's there like my stock seat or my stock windshield for instance until I get used to it. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then the problem goes away. At first, this windshield drove me nuts. But after, and I kept thinking of different ways that I could modify it and whatnot, and I just never got around to it. And now I don't even think about it. It doesn't bother me. I'm totally used to the bike the way it is. Yeah, I really like part the, of the standard windscreen on on. Yes, um, it's an R80GS and I've never changed it. I just altered the position a little bit on it. At one stage, I had an extra little lip on the top of it, but that started cracking the, the main screen, so I took it off and I've never really noticed. And when Birgit and I are riding, she gets to the end of the day and she hasn't got a bug splat advisor and I have, but I kind of like that bit of breeze that's blowing the, the rubbish off my visor as I'm riding anyway, so I'll put up with the flies. But um, um, maybe I was just the right model for for the 1992 R80 GS BMW, <laughs> uh, st standard BMW rider. Do you know, I think my next favourite accessory is my sheepskin saddle cover. Mm, which you no longer have. Mm, well, I've just made myself a new one. Um, mm. It's a bit more blonde than the last one. 
Um, so um, it's called Boris, after the ex-mayor of London, now our foreign minister, um, <laughs> blonde and tousled. Right, perfect. I was thinking about you, Sam, uh, just uh, maybe a week and a half or two weeks ago. I was at a place where they sell sheepskin motorcycle seat covers and we just stopped at this it's this roadside tourist thing and, and i and i looked at it and i thought you know i know everybody says these things are so great i've never tried one before so i'm standing there petting it and uh elizabeth you know says well you, you can't sit on a dead sheep <laughs> it's just it's just not right you know <laughs> but i was thinking about you and i was wondering what you did i was wondering if you ended up getting a new sheepskin or, or whether you just decided to pack it in maybe go synthetic nah. No, no way. No new sheepskin. And um, I'm just in the process of uh, making an unpadded one to bring over to the States with me on this next trip because it takes up less space in my luggage. But I really missed having the sheepskin to sit on when it was so hot this last trip. Yeah, very, very sweaty ride um, without it. Graham, are you a sheepskin rider? Yeah, I am actually. Um, we, I'm sure we've had this conversation on Raw before, but yeah, definitely. And I have an Airhawk seat underneath it, uh, oh, so I've got uh, I've got the, the comfort of the Airhawk and the sheepskin. There was there was a, one of the few problems about motor camp, which is sort of my my local bar, if you like, is that you know always adventure riders coming through. Sometimes you can have the same conversations again and again and again. Sometimes you can have the forum. Whoops. Hmm. Debates. And there was two people, I wasn't involved really in the conversation, but two people talking about the sheepskin seat and they had clearly read everything about them. And they said, and it has to be exactly shorter. It won't provide the wicking of the sweat and the comfort that it's capable of. And if it's longer than an inch, then it will get wet and hold the wet. And I thought, really, if I've got to shave my sheepskin so it's exactly an inch, what it's come to. Anyway, you, we you went up to Romania to and exact. we didn't have the best weather. And we've gone up a, up a uh, exactly an inch, exactly an inch. Oh, oh right. <laughs> so, so, so research is proof. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah you just cut out a couple of times there. Oh, okay. Exactly well, anyway, it was supposed to. It was supposed to be exactly an inch long. Anyway, obviously I wasn't worried. My sheepskin is my sheepskin. I'm really not going to measure the length of it. Length of hair has never really been a concern of mine. So I went. we went up to the mountains in Romania. It was low cloud, pissing rain. And there we see sorry, miserable-looking sheep wandering around. And they had really long coats. And it's like, oh, maybe there's something in it. If they had, if they had inch-long sheepskin, it wouldn't be nearly as wet as they are now. <laughs> Okay, so for plugs, Sam, what do you have for us? Um, I just want to mention the first three events that I've got coming up in the States in September. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be going back over, and my first event is at Irv Siva BMW in Orange, California, and that's on September the 3rd. My next one is at San Jose BMW on September the 8th, and the third one is at Horizons Unlimited California near Yosemite. Um, yes. That's in Mariposa. And um, yeah, that's on the 22nd to the 25th. And um, I, I'm really excited about being back in the States. And these three events are just going to be an absolute ball. So anybody that can come along, yeah, do. Um, we're going to have some fun. So the September 3rd, September 8th, and September 22nd, if you want to see yep. Sam and actually meet you face-to-face, right? You're, you're doing signed copies of the book there, I assume? 
signed copies, and um, I actively encourage heckling. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we'll go with Grant. Okay. Um, main thing I want to talk about is website and events. We've got the Hum Sierras de España. 2016 is coming. So we're back in Spain with the Hum, Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness. For those who've ridden before, uh, we ran for five years in Spain, then went to Morocco. We just did Hum Rockies, which was spectacularly successful. We were booked out in six weeks, uh, full ride up, and the riding was spectacular, fantastic, beautiful, amazing views to see. And uh, so the new Hum Spain. Uh, we're in Aragon, the province of Aragon, and that's coming up on 17 to 20 of October. Registration is open now. Just go to horizonsunlimited.com slash events, and you'll see Hum Spain. So that's the, the main big event that I'd like to talk about. Of course, we've got uh, other events coming. We've got California. We've got Can West coming in a couple of weeks, and Jim will be there with Adventure Rider Radio there. We'll be actually broadcasting live from the venue, so if you want to be involved in that. Oh, we'll be recording live. Recording live. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. that's right. For some reason, I was thinking we were going to do it live, but anyway, no. recording anyway, but people can ask questions on the show, and that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's um, going to be good, and and there's, and maybe next time we'll do it live, but for this time we'll record it, and then uh, uh, you're not brave, Jim. You're then, not brave. <laughs> no, not brave <laughs> enough. <laughs> so this was being the first one, but it will be. It's, it's going to be neat. I mean, I think, oh, anyways, yeah. what I'm envisioning because people that are there are going to be able to ask questions of the group, and hopefully we'll have everybody there. Um, I'm not sure if everyone's confirmed yet, all of us as far as the group for for raw, but it should be good fun. Yeah, I, I really hope I can join you guys on this because it does sound like an awful lot of fun. You're going to be catching me at the Overland Magazine event. So um, I hope I can get enough Wi-Fi and I hope I can get enough quiet to be able to join in. But uh, it'll be a real buzz. Horizons, Overland, um, all live, all happening at the same time. Superb. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it should be good. And, even, and like I said before, Sam, even if you only come in for a bit of it, whatever you can manage would be great. Mm, I will do my very best. It'll be a case of find out what it's like when I get there. So, uh, And Graham, hopefully you'll be out of the hospital by then. Oh, God, I hope so. I want to be by then, yeah. Oh, anyway. Grant, you mentioned website work. I'm curious. What's happening? We are doing a massive upgrade. This, it's, the last upgrade was 2012. Now we're doing one that's even more significant. Uh, it's going to take us all year to do it, but it's well underway. We've got all the um, foundation. The infrastructure is now built and working. Um, we've got blogs. The new system for the blogs is coming. That's going to be very, very nice. Uh, lots of things you can do with it. Um, we're looking for GPS coordinates for just about anything. So if somebody knows of a database of just about anything points of interest, border crossings, um, where all the repair shops are, anything like that. If you know of a database that we can link to or get the use of, please send me an email, let me know. And if anybody would be interested in being a tester on the new system, we'd also like to have some feedback from users, um, what you like, what you don't like, and what you would like to see. And we're looking for ideas as well. This is the time to incorporate your your big wants. What would you really like to see? What do you find missing out there that you want to know about? You can help us out. Just drop me a line. Interesting. Now, is this going to be a completely physically like different site when you look at it? Uh, it's going to look roughly the same. 
but it will be completely responsive, which some people, those who know, uh, for those who don't know, responsive means it works on your phone, it works on your tablet, it works on your 27-inch monitor. It doesn't matter. It just plain works properly on all of those uh, platforms. Uh, and that's, we find uh, we're getting more and more and more use of phone and tablets than we ever have. Uh, it's growing by leaps and bounds, and we want to make sure that people can be in the middle of nowhere, some strange place on their phone trying to find something out and say, where's the nearest repair shop? I'm stuck. And we'll be able to tell you, where's the nearest repair shop that can fix your bike? Fantastic. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was at motor camp, and there was a girl who was there. And a lot of people, as soon as they get there, the first thing they do, put on the Wi-Fi and stare at their phones and their computers for the first two or three hours, oh, sometimes yeah. longer. And uh, so there's this girl there, and she's banging away on her computer. And a few of us were going up to Basluja, which is this uh, abandoned communist monument, uh, which looks like a flying saucer, an incredible place. There's a picture of it on the cover of Eureka. And it's one of the must-sees when you're here. And um, we were all going up. And said, oh, I can't go tomorrow. She said, oh, I've got to do this work. It's like, well, she said, I'm working while I'm here. This is a working holiday. And she, and, uh, she said, I'm doing a website, and I've got to do it. I promise the guy I'm doing it. And I just thought, why are you even here? You know, you're in Bulgaria and you're missing out on seeing one of the most prestigious sites that there is in the country and you're not bothering. Anyway, whatever you want to do, this is why do people travel with their computers and miss out on everything they're doing? Anyway, the next day I went down there and uh, saw her again and she she mentioned, I don't know how it came to being, but she was saying, oh, I, I spoke to, to Grant about it. And I thought, why are you name dropping? I don't know you talk about it. Who's Grant? It turns out she's working on the Horizons Unlimited website. <laughs> <laughs> and she has forgone, forgone one of the best spectacles there is in the country because she's so dedicated to doing it. So uh, yep. double wow, sword, that that's, one. <laughs> that's for sure. That's Rachel Lawson. She's our uh, main developer and she's doing amazing work and coming up with great stuff. And one of the things she's doing is taking a working vacation. She's riding from the UK on a, she's got a new BMW S1000XR, which she's absolutely fallen in love with. And she rode all the way to Greece and she's riding around through now. She's in Hungary at the moment. She was in Bulgaria recently. And one of the things she's doing is writing a blog on the new system as she goes and saying, oh, you know, this would be better if it was like this. And this is real. I'm using it now. And I don't like this, so I'm going to fix this and change it and improve it. So we're getting some really good feedback on that from how she's using it and what she's learning. So lots of stuff that the travelers will want to be able to use to enter their information as they go and pick up GPS points and where's places of interest. And the coolest site in all of Bulgaria, of course, has to be one of those GPS points that we'll have in there. <laughs> uh, we need to make sure we've got the coordinates for that. Um, and all kinds of things like that that are going to be useful for travelers that can input their own story, but at the same time, they can also put in useful waypoints that will help others following along behind. So that uh, I mean, way back in the beginning, the original tagline for Horizons Unlimited was travelers helping travelers, helping each other find out more, help us find out what's the story. How do I do this? What did you learn? And what we want is to be able to really get back to that root and say, what do you know that you can easily pass on? We want to make it easy for you to pass on information to help others. And the more people that do that, of course, the more information we have to 
help all of us get out there and do some more traveling. And that's what it's all about. So rather than having to post it in the forum and have to go through all the threads and to, to find the information, you're going to make it simpler than that. Yeah. We want you to be able to say, I'm here because your phone knows where you are and I need a repair shop. I need to know where's the border crossing. I need to know where there's the nearest hospital. It's all location possible now. We yeah. can do that. And if you want to figure out where's all the repair shops on your way or um, where's all the good hotels that motorcyclists have been to and checked out and said it was friendly for bikes and a good place to store your bike and all that kind of stuff, um, that'll be all in there easily found. The point is to make it simple, simple to put in and simple to get it out. We don't uh, just, want it to be difficult. I was going to make a suggestion. You've, you've probably already thought of this probably based on what you're doing, but uh, or what, this is probably the base of what you're doing, but I was going to say a, a check-in method would be perfect. So if you had a button on there to say you can check in and then you can choose your category of what you're checking in on, and when it checks in, it automatically feeds up your GPS data so you know what the location is. So in other words, I could go on and click and check in and, and say, okay, this is the name of the place I'm checking in, and it automatically gives the GPS coordinates. Yeah, yeah, we're doing something similar to that, but I like the, the check-in button idea. That's that's cool. We could use that. Yeah, things like that are what we're looking for from people. Um, a lot, everybody out there has a favorite thing that they use somewhere. They've got good ideas. We want that feedback. So anybody that wants to help out, please contact me. Love to make it better for you. When's it supposed to be done? Um, we'll be rolling something out that you'll be able to see the basic blog system in its Early iteration will be out by probably the first week or maybe second week at the latest of September. So you'll be seeing it soon in its approximate new guise. And over the next uh, four or five months, we'll be rolling out a whole lot more. Nice. And that's horizonsunlimited.com for those who haven't picked that up already. Well, so Sam, what do you have? Um, We've already done, me. Yes. (laughs) Three events. We did. But I can do one more. Yeah, and that's cool. my next event is the Overland Magazine event, <laughs> and that's happening um, at the end of August. It's actually going to be a really busy time because I've got the Overland Magazine event, which is um, heading there on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I have to leave um, Saturday afternoon, hurtle back to Exeter, and um, for the Monday, and then on um, Tuesday morning, I'm on the plane. Wow. Um, so um, it's going to be a busy time. And then I'm riding from Phoenix to um, Orange near L.A. Um, to do that first presentation on the 3rd of September. Very so nice. busy bloke. How do you manage to get a bike all the time when you go over to the States? Um, I've been really lucky this last time and this time. Al Jesse from Jesse Luggage has um, lent me his personal F800 GS, which has been an absolute boon. Um, the cost of renting a bike for me with you know what I do for a living and just just wouldn't equate I have considered buying a bike and keeping it in the states but again that's you know just a huge expense so we're working on a plan for the next time I'm over in the states after this um this next trip and I what happened was Graham cut out there and that's what threw me off Graham what do you have for your plug I thought you'd never ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he even sounded like he was holding his breath. Did you hear that? Yeah. He did. <laughs> <laughs> From um, the hospital bed well, in Bulgaria. I'm, uh, I've been quite reclusive this summer. I haven't really done a lot of shows, but I'm coming back to the UK and there's the Cop Dot Bike Show, which is in Ipswich in Suffolk. And it's a brilliant show. I've 
it used to be in Copdog, which is why it's called the Copdog Bike Show. And I've been going there for probably 25 years. It's totally outgrown its venue years ago. It's a massive one-day show. And it's a really ethical show. It's cheap for us as traders to have a stand. It's inexpensive for visitors to come. They don't try and rip you off with car park fees or extortionate gate fees or anything. All the money goes to charity. And so, But ethics aside, it's just it's a full-on show of classic bikes, of custom bikes, of wall of death, of stump riders of hundreds of trade stalls uh, hundreds of auto jumble stalls and it's just uh, it's just a really they, they always seem to be very lucky with their weather it's a great show i'm going to be at that the cop doc show um which i'm looking forward to done it for quite a few years running now and the other thing that i'm going to plug is um i've put my ktm for sale on ebay i don't know when you're going to get this show out in time jim because i now slay all of your editing and everything but the um the uh, auction ends next sunday i don't know what the date is next sunday uh it'll be about the 15th something like that um but if anybody wants to buy my KTM 950 Adventure, it's sitting at about £1,400 at the moment. It could be yours, fully accessorised, and, as we were talking earlier, with two different windscreens. Now, is that autographed, and does that come with a box set? You know, somebody said on eBay, they said, you should say who you are. And I was like, no, it's way too pretentious. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but um, yeah. I don't know. You know, don't, you think my name has any status that I want to deface it with my autograph and start giving books away as a come on. But, um, but it, so it, really, it, that's it. Uh, then you just don't want to give books away. I shouldn't need to. It's a bike stands by its own. And books are my living. I don't give them away. Well, Jim. if the bike was so great, you wouldn't be selling it, would you? I tell you what, speechless. I'll be honest, I tell you what, I fell out of love with it. It's very simple. Um, it broke down on me once on the way to Hub in Ireland, and it pissed me off. That's all fixed now. Um, I came off it once, and uh, it's got crash bars, so no damage done. But I, I did love it when I first got it in 2012. And one of my first rides, in fact, was to see a presentation of Sam's in Stratford-on-Avon. And it was brilliant. Rode it down to Bulgaria. And I've just, I've got my Triumph Tiger now, which sort of, sort of does pretty much what that would do. And I love the torque. I love the power delivery. I love aspects of it. It's the Adventure S, which is really tall. So I'm tippy-toe on it, which is never really ideal for, for confidence. And I've just fallen out of love with it. Most of the bikes I, I buy, I, I keep. The, it's a love affair that goes on forever. But not the KLR. Just don't want it anymore. Done. Not, not <laughs> I'm the in the KLR. KTM. Yeah. So what you're saying is yeah, it's, the, it's too powerful for you. No, did you not listen to what I said? <laughs> I'm trying to read between the lines here. I'm just trying to figure out. You know, it's, it must be. What I said was, I can't find it. <laughs> it's too orange. <laughs> you know, having followed having followed this story from um, from Graham as um, he's got to this stage, I think the turning point was when he was trying to work his way across a slippery gra grassy field and suddenly realised that um, his legs weren't long enough to be able to dab when he needed to, <laughs> and that lack of confidence suddenly um, made him think, right, okay, it's this is time. This is probably not the bike for me. Does that make sense, Graham? Yeah, it did. I mean, that was one of many nails in the coffin of my love affair with it. But it was a stupid little, it was just wet grass. It was nothing challenging. 
and the bike, the back wheel was just spinning and then it wouldn't move forward. I'm really selling this bike well, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're just going to get lots of people with long legs buying it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry, you've got to be long-legged or... Yeah, you can edit that bit out. But, you know, it's, it's the Adventure S, the 2003 Adventure S is probably, I think, the tallest model, I think, in, they made for Scandinavians or something. I think after that, they made them a little lower. It is a tall bike. I'm 5'11". Is it taller than the F800? Oh, God. Much I don't know. I've never seen a BMW. I've ridden the uh, 2003-ish, the original 950S, and I'm six feet oh. tall, and it's it's a stepladder bike. It's oh, just really? ridiculous. Yeah, it's really, really tall. It is a tall bike. Uh, And, uh, I mean, they're lovely bikes, well-engineered, white power suspension. I've got the Hippo and Becker panniers. I mean, even considered putting bricks in the panniers to see if I could lower it a little bit. (laughs) It's... uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just, they're lovely bikes, but you, you, I think if you're, if you're, if you're a confident rider, I mean, little people ride big bikes and they're fine. I guess it's just the wrong combination for me, so uh, that's why I'm selling it. Well, there you have it. You can have, you can have Graham Field's motorcycle that he can't ride because he doesn't have the skill level and it's too powerful for him. All you have to do is go to eBay, and you can buy it right up from under him. And by the sounds of it, it's quite a steal right now. So if nobody gets in there, I guess you're going to lose heavily on it. I. I, I, when I sell something on eBay, I have, never have a reserve. Always start it at ninety-nine pence because I believe a product is only worth what the highest bidder will pay for it. And you have mm-hmm. these people with these dreams and they have these stupid reserves and these high, uh, high asking prices, and they just stay there forever and ever and ever. If you want to sell a vehicle, you got to be motivated. It will go to the highest bidder. That's as simple as that. Well, I guess that wraps things up. Um, we were quite a long one today. There will be a, a small bit edited out of there, just um, with Graham speaking. But um, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> Jim, you know. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, Jim. Were you talking? I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Sam? Oh, I'm just thinking we need to get onto the after after show party quickly. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so where where, where are we going to have the after show party? Hey, you know what would be fun is to go to the hospital bed. Yeah, oh, that's a couple, talking. Yeah, there's a couple yeah. of spare beds in here. Well, there's a lot of pissed off looking people on the rest of the wall, dude. Which I turn out the lights and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's it. We're gonna we're gonna head to Bulgaria. You're in Bulgaria, right? You're gonna send us a GPS coordinate or something. Um, it's just come to Gabrovo Hospital. I'm on the tenth floor of the VIP room, as a matter of fact. VIP room? What? Yeah, I paid, paid an extra seventeen quid to be honest. I got my own fridge and everything. Wow! And you really? say your name won't do anything on eBay? Come on. <laughs> Oh, actually, I, I've got a big wardrobe here, a big old Soviet-style wardrobe. I looked in it, and it's full of Christmas decorations. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if I want, I could decorate my room. <laughs> after show party at the hospital with Graham. When we is there, yep. put a shrimp on the Barbie. Yep, Graham, you need to get everybody there to say goodbye in Bulgarian or something. That's a good idea. Can you do that? Well, as soon as it's one o'clock in the morning, I think... Um, uh, you might have a hard time. <laughs> I, I think um, Lekanosh will be good enough. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd like to hear the response anyway when you ask. <laughs> Probably <laughs> things. The equivalent. Shut the fuck up, you long haired <laughs> British bastard. <laughs> and with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks, everyone. Okay, Talk to you next month. Cheers, Sam. See you next month. Like a well, there you have it. 
ARR Raw for the month of August 2016. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you like the show, you like what you hear, you want to keep it coming to you free, drop by our website. Consider clicking on the donate button. Drop us some cash to help keep the show running. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. See you next month.